You're listening to All Things Cognition, a Psychonomic Society podcast. Now, here is your host, Laura Mikis. In the upcoming interview, I speak with Delai Karadolosh about her paper published in the Psychonomic Society journal, Memory and Cognition. Thank you so much for interviewing with me about your paper. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Your paper is called Late Sign Language Exposure Does Not Modulate the Relation Between Spatial Language and Spatial Memory in Deaf Children and Adults, and it's published in Memory and Cognition. If you allow me, I'm going to try to sum it up and you tell me if I got it or not. So in a nutshell, the paper describes research that you and your collaborators conducted where you're interested in if deaf children and adults who use sign language have similar associations between spatial language and spatial memory that's found typically in hearing children. So you want to see if if you found that. Importantly, some of your participants learn signing very early. I believe you call it native. Some learn signing later. Did I get the gist of it? Yeah, kind of. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) correct me. Will you please give us some background to the research? Sure, of course. We are chasing after one of the fundamental abilities that children need to develop, which is communicating and reasoning about spatial relations. I'm sure you can relate that children from very early on observe and manipulate on objects around them. These objects are often configured in various spatial relations to each other, such as when they are eating on the table, there's a fork left of the plate, for instance. And they somehow figure out communicating about these spatial configurations and remembering them later on, maybe for certain processes. However, when we look at the literature, majority of previous studies who aim to understand the development of communication and reasoning of spatial relations, they draw on data from children growing up with typical linguistic experience. So these children are exposed to a language right after birth. Unfortunately, this is not the case for many deaf children. Most deaf children, like around 95% of the deaf population, born to hearing parents. And uh-huh. they lack immediate access to a conventional uh, sign or spoken language. They cannot access to the spoken language around them because they cannot hear. And usually their parents are hearing who doesn't know sign language, so they cannot communicate with their kid in sign language. And even with hearing aids, these devices may not provide enough access to the surrounding speech in some circumstances. They may not be picking up the spatial language. Any language. Not only spatial, they cannot pick up any language. 95%. Yeah, it's, it's a huge percentage. Wow. These children are called late signers because they get their first exposure to a conventional language, usually later in life. For instance, in our case, in our data set, children were getting their sign language exposure around age six when they start the school for the deaf. Wow. And the mean of education was not also in Turkish sign language. It was a Turkish sample. They only get exposed to sign language, the first sign language exposure they had is from peers who know sign language only during play sessions or recess. Mm. Yeah. Are the parents using gesture 
gesture. There are gestural communication systems at home, but these are idiosyncratic. Sure. Every home situation has a different communication system. There might be, of course, similarities. Some research also suggests, but generally these home signing, they called situations, are specific to this a particular household and they don't very much resemble a conventional language system. So this kid needs a exposure to a conventional sign language. Does this affect your, I'm jumping way ahead, but do you worry that this home signing affects the results that it makes your late signers more, more uh, variable they are, of course, more variable. Okay. There, there could be effects of those that we couldn't control. What we could do sure. to control some of these effects is to control for the duration of sign language exposure. Okay. All of the late signing children in our sample in the paper had been exposed to sign language for two years at the school situation. Okay. So all of these children in our sample were exposed to sign language at school and for two years long. Okay, so that's the, the tight control you had over So th- that's the only control that we had, but we don't know what happened to them in their home signing situations. Another percent of the deaf population, the 5% of the deaf population have deaf parents. And we call them native signers in the paper as they are exposed to sign language from birth onwards from their deaf parents and caregivers. So like typically developing hearing children that we uh, talked about at the beginning, they had an immediate language exposure, which is a conventional language. The only difference is the modality. Right. Yeah. So in our work, uh, what we did is that we investigated such atypical cases of language acquisition, like late signers, in comparison to a typical acquisition case in the same modality. We think that it can shed light and give some insights into the complex interplay between spatial language use and spatial memory accuracy. Like in weights may not be possible by studying, of course, typically developing children. So it's kind of very exciting. That is exciting. The exact research question is what? The exact research question is, do timing of language exposure influences first the way signers encode spatial relations in sign language, I mean spatial relations between objects, of course, and whether the timing of sign language exposure, as well as the variations in the way they encode spatial relations between objects due to these exposure differences, predict memory for spatial relations. Okay, got it. And how did you test it? We had a design where we had a participant and an addressee. We designed a display with four pictures. In every picture, there were like two objects, apple and a pencil, for instance. Uh, One of the objects was more bigger and the other one was more smaller in size, maybe like a plate and a fork, let's say. Okay. And then the bigger object that we named ground object was always in the center of these four pictures. So imagine like two by two grid display with four pictures. In every of the picture, there's a plate in the middle. And what we did in this four picture is that we varied the spatial configuration of the fork in relation to the ground. Sometimes the fork was to the left of the plate. Sometimes it's on the plate, like under the plate or something like that. 
Okay. So there was one arrow appearing in the middle of the screen, uh, targeting one of the pictures. And we tell participants to describe the target picture that is pointed with an arrow to the addressee in front of them. Okay. They like uh, describe A to four uh, displays like that in various spatial configurations. And then they did a destructor task and then they got a surprise memory task. And in this memory task, what happened is that they received the similar displays with same pictures, but we removed the arrow and randomized the order of the pictures in the display. And we asked them which one of the pictures that you had described to the addressee previously. Okay. This was the memory component. Right. Before the memory test, they would yeah. sign what they saw. They, so yeah. Could you give an example of it? Yeah. What usually what happens is that there are several ways in sign languages that you can uh, express the spatial relation between objects. And one of the conventional linguistic forms is called classifier constructions. I will sign how they look for you. In these constructions, what happens is that they uh, depict the picture through their hands. They first introduce the lexical signs. For instance, this is a lexical sign for plate, and this is a lexical sign for fork in Turkish sign language. So we now have the reference, like objects but we don't know the spatial relation between them, right? Yeah. And then they choose certain hand shapes to represent the size and shape properties of these hand shapes. And they put their hands on the signing space in front of them and configure the spatial relationship. For a plate, for instance, they might have a like, half round hand shape like that. Right. They put it in the middle. And for fork, they choose usually an elongated hand shape, for instance, and put it next to the played in an analog way that is depicted in the original target picture. Right. So that's how they then describe it. And then you have the surprise memory test. Yeah. And in, this was in the native signers and then the late signers. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else they did? There are alternative ways to do it. For instance, they might uh, use lexical terms like left, right to indicate mm. the locations of objects, or they can point to the location of the objects. The most complex way to depict actually is through classifier constructions. There are many linguistic forms in linguistic constructs, let's say that you have to choose the correct hand shapes, use your hands simultaneously, and so on and so forth. So what we predicted, also we found in an earlier research, is that classifier constructions are hard to be learned. So it's a late aspect of linguistic development. And late signers, although they seem so iconically motivated, have a hard time to do it. They use classifier constructions less frequently than their native signing counterparts, even in adulthood. Wow. Are they ever able to pick it up? Yeah, they do. Of course, they, they, it's not natural. There's no signer who doesn't do classifier construction, but they tend to use classifier constructions less compared to other simpler forms, simpler one being, for instance, pointing. You don't have to think about the hand shape configuration so much. You can just point that the fork is here, for instance. Right. Yeah. Easier. Yeah, easier, more right. easier compared to others. Yeah. What did you hypothesize? So we first predict that. The timing of sign language exposure, like uh, being a late signer or native signer, will influence the way signers encode space. There might be differences in the way they choose certain linguistic structures to encode these spatial relations between objects. We also somewhat documented it in our uh, earlier study published last year. 
And for the relationship between spatial language use and spatial memory accuracy, we, we had alternative predictions, actually, because we were testing what we will find. We thought that late exposure or timing of sign language exposure may influence the memory for spatial relations by itself, possibly due to shorter experience with a conventional language. Right. Also, we thought that the ways in which signers encode space might also predict differences in spatial memory. For instance, iconically depicting a spatial configuration may predict a higher memory accuracy than depicting it less iconically, for instance, because iconic depictions might create more action representations or they might create double encoding and more memory traces in their mind during description that may lead to better memory accuracy in the uh, surprise memory task. This was my question. This is what I was going to ask you later. Okay, good. For their other predictions. Alternatively, it is also possible that neither this timing of sign language exposure or nor the ways in which signers encode the spatial relations predict spatial memory. And this could mean that the relationship between spatial language use, spatial memory are either nuanced Mm. or that the two systems are governed maybe independent from each other. Those are your predictions. Yeah, those those were our predictions. And were they supported? Uh, Partially, yes. We found that Timing of sign language exposure indeed influenced the ways in which signers encode space. However, neither the timing of sign language exposure nor or the variations in the ways in which signers encode spatial relations predicted spatial memory. It did. So, no, it didn't. So, it did not predict spatial memory. No, it memory. didn't. Yeah, it did not predict spatial memory. Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised by that. Yeah. We, we too, but we were somewhat, somewhat expecting it as well. And uh, yeah, also it's something nice to find, right? So if you are even a delayed in like acquiring sign language, it seems that at least even though you are using different linguistic structures to encode or uh, communicate about spatial configurations between objects, that it does not uh, affect your memory for spatial relations in our particular task. What do you think it all means? Oh, it's a big question. Yeah, it's a big question. At least what I can say that the results that we presented in this work shows that being exposed to sign language late, of course, in comparison to being exposed early, influences the ways in which we look at both the frequency and type of different spatial linguistic forms in encoding left-right relations. Because uh, I haven't mentioned in previously, but we were interested in left-right as a particular domain, left-right spatial configuration between objects, which is found to be cognitively, also linguistically, a late aspect of spatial domain. It, it is the one that is learned later than for the in-on or front-behind. Oh. Early versus late exposure to sign language do not necessarily predict further variations in memory accuracy, at least within our task. What are you going to do next? Are you following up on any of this? Yeah, we are following up on it. We already have data and analyzing data for visual attention patterns of participants during a planning of description. So it's possible that effects of language on cognition are not salient if the task, such as the memory experiment in our case, mm-hmm. carried out after the language use was completed. 
Oh. Yeah. Through an eye-tracking experiment, we will search whether the relationship between language and cognition, spatial language use and spatial cognition, is visible during an online task, like during or immediately prior to language is being used. Oh. We already documented participants' eye-tracking patterns. Where do they look on the display while planning a description? And now we will link these patterns to their types of linguistic firms they use and the frequency of them compared across late and native signers. Can you tell me what you found or no, you'll wait? No, we haven't. Oh, yeah, we haven't reached. (laughs) This is the ultimate cliffhanger. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so we'll we'll just have to wait and see what you found. We were interested in the domain of left-right relations between objects because across many spoken languages, it has been documented that left-right is a late aspect of spatial language development. And around age eight, speaking kids cannot use left-right spatial terms to talk about left-right spatial relation between mm-hmm. the objects. But research shows that from one of our collaborators, Beza Sumer's research shows that Signer kids can encode left-right spatial relation between objects earlier in sign compared to speaking kids in speech because they can iconically encode it. What they had to do is they have to learn about abstract concepts of left and right, which are symmetrically similar, and map different spatial terms like this side is my right and this side is left, or this side of the object is right, and this side of the object is left, although these sides are symmetrically similar. So this abstract mapping of facial terms to the concepts are maybe hard for speaking kids and easy for signing kids. That makes a lot of sense, that they have a better understanding of it, because they're yeah. they're using space yeah, to, to make about language. Space. Yeah, yeah, it's so neat. Yeah, there's a mnemonic. They hold yeah. your hand up and that makes an L shape and that's the left. Yeah. I think I used that thing for a long time. <laughs> you also did some body anchored cueing to remind you yourself for your own left, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. yeah. <laughs> you didn't test any hearing children or adults. Actually, we also have data from hearing participants that we presented in an earlier study. And it is interesting, though, that we found hearing children around the same age as age eight are using left-right spatial terms in Turkish less frequently than their adult counterparts. They are relying more on their gestures to complement the missing information in their speech. So they do also use some uh, body representation. So their gestures to uh, communicate about left-right spatial relations between objects. So they are actually signing it in an unofficial way. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. You would never call it signing it. (laughs) Uh, I would never call it signing it. Yeah. They are using their gestures to complement the the missing information in their speech. I just assume that they would be better at spatial everything because of their embodied language. That is the case in some of your other research. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me about your research. Thank you for the invitation. It was very nice to chat with you about the research. Thank you for listening to All Things Cognition, a Psychonomic Society podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the channel using your favorite podcast player or app. 
All members of the Psychonomic Society receive free access to our seven journals and are invited to attend our annual conference at no charge. Learn more and become a member by visiting us online at www.psychonomic.org.